so proud of you guys, by the way, for bringing your daughter here like two weeks after you had her. It took Kathy and I about like six months before we let anybody near Grayson. Granted, he was a, a little bit premature, but whatever. Okay. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been focused on uh, this topic of love. And it's, it's, a kind of a, it's kind of an important topic, seeing as God is love and his entire relationship with us is motivated by love. Furthermore, Jesus was always saying, like, the world will know you are my disciples. How? By the... That's all I heard right there. How will the world know that we're his disciples? By our love, by the way we love one another. So love is an extremely important topic. And, and in fact, as Lee has been teaching on it this last couple of weeks, he's kept referring back to this passage that we're all really familiar with. But I'm I'm pretty sure that it's one of those verses that we're so familiar with that we don't actually really understand or hear what we're saying when we're saying it. We just kind of repeat it. Kind of like one of those songs that you're so intimately familiar with. You can sing every single lyric, but you never actually stop to listen to the lyrics until your kids are sitting in the car and they're like, oh, what does that mean? You're like, uh, yeah. So turn with me to Mark chapter 12 because we're going to take a look at this passage and... and Over the next two weeks, we're going to unpack it in its entirety. Now, just to give you, as you're you're turning there to Mark chapter 12, I'll give you a little bit of context. During Jesus' ministry, his popularity, or some would say his notoriety, began to grow. And as it grew, there were people who weren't really all that excited with his ministry and what he was teaching. There were some, especially the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, Sadducees, teachers of the law, who looked at Jesus more as a rabble-rouser, somebody who was kind of shaking the foundation of what they felt was honorable, or, and, and they just were looking for any way that they could shut him down. They were kind of like the um, gotcha journalists of today who were asking questions, looking for some way to catch Jesus in something so they could sensationalize it and somehow you know, downplay Jesus' importance. And discredit him. So one of the questions, this is an example of a question that they would ask, actually found here at the beginning of of Mark chapter 12. One of them asks, all right, Jesus, you know, Rome is this occupying force over Israel. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Basically insinuating, here's the catch 22. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, they say, oh, you are, you know, a traitor to your people. But if he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Oh, you're a revolutionary. That's dangerous. So Jesus is caught in this catch-22, and yet Jesus doesn't take the bait. Time and time again, when they ask him these gotcha kind of questions, he comes at it from a completely different perspective and exposes their, their kind of flawed thinking and helps really hammer home something important. So Jesus' response to that question is, well, show me a coin. Who's, whose image is on that? Caesar's. All right. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's pointing to the fact that we have been created in God's image. So while the the coin may bear Caesar's image, therefore give him the coin, you bear God's image, therefore give him yourself. We read here now in verse 28 of Mark chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, all right, well, here, I got another one for you. Of all of the commandments, which is the most important? My guess is he, again, is looking to catch Jesus. You know, okay, got these Ten Commandments. Which one would you point out as the most important? 
Should it be, you know, that they should have no other gods before me? Maybe honoring the Sabbath. That was an important one for them. Or how about honoring my parents? Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. You know, which one of these commandments would you point to? And Jesus, rather than answering with one of those, picking one so that they could then go, well, why didn't you pick all these other ones? Responded this way, verse 29. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So over the next two weeks, we're going to unpack what Jesus was saying, because if this was the most important thing, if this summed up everything, then it's worth our time to understand what he was saying. And I used to think that Jesus just pulled this out of the top of his head, right? Because he is the man or the God man or however you want to say it. Like Jesus is way smarter than all the rest of them. So he's like, well, here. But in reality, this what he was quoting is at least that first part was perhaps the single most well-known passage in all of Scripture to a Jew in their day. It's part of what is called the Shema, a prayer that was prayed, prayed every morning and every evening by every Jew throughout Israel. It was also the first prayer that a child would learn when they were being trained up. In a lot of ways, this was their John 3.16. And it's taken directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I know many of you are probably studying there this morning in your quiet time. Turn with me to Deuteronomy. It's right there towards the beginning of, the, of your Bible. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is kind of the last conversation that Moses, is having, Moses was having with the Israelites before they went into the promised land, reminding them of all that God had done, leading up to bringing them to the cusp of the promised land, and now sending them off to take the land that God had promised them. And the Shema, just as we're kind of getting prepared for this, the Shema is a word that means here. It's a Hebrew word, and in fact, it's the first word found in this passage that we're going to look at. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one of the Lord alone. And these words are coming on the heels of, of Moses kind of going through the Ten Commandments, and then he just simply declares this. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to back up and look at it verse by verse. He says this in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today referring back to the Ten Commandments that he had just gone over in, verse, in chapter 5, these commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. This is the first part of this prayer that every Israeli person would pray in the morning and in the evening to remind them of their covenant with their God. And so Jesus isn't reinventing the wheel. He's not making something up. He's simply pointing to this verse and saying, this sums up everything. But I think that it's pretty familiar to many of us, at least that first part. And so what I want us to do is kind of back up and we're going to take it line by line, verse by verse, and actually look at what some of the, the language is saying there, what he is actually calling us to. 
And I don't know about you, but when I read this, I tend to skip over that first part, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and I jump right to the second verse of love the Lord your God, because that's the part I can kind of, I understand what love is. At least I think I do. And so I kind of camp there, and I dismiss, or I just ignore, or look at, it's almost like just kind of the lead up to what he's actually saying. And I think we miss some real big kernels, because here's the thing, Jesus didn't skip over that. He didn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He started with, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So what does that actually mean? Well, that word Shema, here's the problem that we run into. The English language has over a million words in it. And it's being added to every single year. The Hebrew language, at least biblical Hebrew, has only 8,000 words in it. So do you see that when we're translating something with 8,000 words into a, a language that has over a million words, each of those Hebrew words has to carry a whole lot more weight and a whole lot more meaning packed into one little word than an English word does. It's kind of like for us how we only have one word for snow, whereas there are some people who are, interact with snow on a constant basis who have seven words for it because they, it, they can kind of go into the nuance. What we do in English is we translate a word that has a tremendous amount of nuance to it and a lot of different understanding, and we take one word. So we say Shema means to hear, and we're done. As if he's basically saying, hey, listen up, Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that's certainly part of it. But think about this for a moment. When I'm, when I'm yelling at my kid, right? Hey, Grayson, stop hitting your brother. Grayson, stop it. Grayson, are you hearing me? It's not a matter of whether he's actually hearing the words I'm saying. He's a four-year-old. He's got good ears. When I have to continue to repeat myself, what I'm really getting at is, are you acknowledging me? And I will know you acknowledge me when you do what? Stop when you obey. And that is wrapped up in this word Shema. Not only that we hear something or listen to it, but that we acknowledge it and therefore we obey what we are hearing. So listen up and pay attention and obey, Israel. The Lord your God, he is one. Echad means not only one as in, you know, there's only one of him, but he, is, he alone is God. There is no other God. Because there's a ton of other pretenders, a ton of other idols, a ton of other things that we could look at and say, that will protect me from what I fear. And this Shema, this prayer, is simply a declaration of there is no other God out there who is worthy of your love, your respect, and your obedience. So listen up, pay attention, and submit and obey your life. Submit your life and obey your God, for he alone is God. And then it progresses into this verse that we are so familiar with. Love the Lord your God by your heart, your soul, and your strength. This word love is another one of those words that kind of gets lost or misunderstood when we try to translate it from Hebrew into English. The word itself in Hebrew is ahava. And while we tend to hear it as, you know, this kind of emotion because we tend to pack it. We have, we have watched so many romantic comedies that we tend to think that love is an emotion that simply follows something that we, we, our hearts kind of latches onto and goes, that is worthy. And we go, oh, I love it. 
the tall, dark, and handsome one that captures my heart, and we live happily ever after. By the way, I've been married 11 years, and I have come to realize that happily ever after is, oh, takes a lot of work, right? A lot of work. And love is not just an emotion, although many of us tend to pack that into there. Because what we're thinking about is attraction, uh, you know, the endorphins that kind of run through our minds. And you may have that at the beginning of a relationship. And that might kind of direct some of your choices. But when you're actually committed and covenanted to somebody, there are days when that excitement that you felt initially doesn't really kind, isn't really there, you know? I love you, but I don't really like you all that much right now. And I know that, you know, it's mutual. Anybody? Don't raise your hand because you get elbowed. (laughs) But I think that you know what I'm talking about, right? And yet, in the midst of that, when you recognize that you have covenanted with someone, that there is no backdoor to your marriage, and that you, for better or worse, have chosen to partner with that individual, it deepens what it means to love that person. Because at the end of the day, ahava and the Greek word agape basically point to a choice. It's more than simply a motion to a decision to love that person. But what does it actually mean to love them? If it goes beyond emotion to a decision, love is a choice to order your life around that, the object of your love, to choose to submit your own desires, your own will, your own purposes to the best interest of what your love interest is. The, <clears throat> the word ahava was often used just to kind of give you an example of how this doesn't mean simply emotion. When kings would go to war and one king conquered another king, they would make a treaty in which one king submitted to the other king. And in the midst of that treaty, the one king would say, you must commit to love the king who is now over you. They're not talking about warm and fuzzies. Okay? What it is suggesting is that the king who is submitting to this greater king who has conquered him is declaring his undying and unwavering loyalty to the king who is now over him. In everything I do, if you want me to do this, then that will be done. You are the king. You are in control. I submit my life. I submit my power. I submit my control. I submit what I had considered to be my kingdom to you because I love you. I am loyal to a fault to you. And that's pretty much what's packed into this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength is I submit myself wholly and completely to you, God. You alone are God. There is no other. And so I will obey you. I will submit myself to you. I will allow you to ultimately determine my steps. And I'm going to choose to obey you, choose to submit to you, choose to be loyal to you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, and all of my strength. Now let's go through what those words mean. With all of your heart. To a Hebrew mind, the heart was not only the seat of our emotions, but in a lot of ways, they saw it as the seat also of our intellect because our heart drove our decisions. And so both your mind and your heart are packed into that, which is interesting because you'll notice that if you go back to Mark chapter 12, when Jesus, I think that Jesus actually probably said that in 
the original Hebrew, and it was translated for those Greek speakers into Greek. But here's how they translated it. With all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And your mind shows up somewhere, and you're going, where is that coming from? Well, one place it could come from is if they understood the heart and the mind to kind of our, our emotions and our intellect to be wrapped up in our heart. When he says love him with all your heart, it means both. So love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your thoughts, with all of your emotion, with all of your soul. Now remember, when God created mankind, all we were was a pile of dust. Then he leaned down and he breathed life into the first man. And his breath imparted a living soul into Adam. And that is what created life in him. Our soul is the life force. And so when he says, love the Lord your God with all your soul, what he is insinuating is, love him with every moment of every day and every breath in your lungs. Not just between the hours of 10 a.m. and 11.15 on a Sunday morning, but with every moment of your life. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. And with all of your strength, actually in Hebrew, that word is love the Lord your God with all of your very. Which means about as much in Hebrew as it does in English, which is to say it's confusing. What does it mean with all of my very? Well, with all of your, with everything you've got, right? With all of your ability, with all of your strength, with all of your, your giftings, and with everything that comes out of it, all of the the, the money and all of the resources that you gather because of your abilities, everything, love him with all of that. Say, basically, everything I have is a gift from you, so your will be done in everything I've got with every moment of my day and with every ability in my body. I will choose to submit and allow you to be the captain of my ship. I will declare my utter and devout loyalty to you. So God... Would you take the wheel of my life? That's this declaration. And and by the way, this reading of it, I know that it probably differs a little bit from how we have tended to read it because we're hearing it with Americanized, westernized ears that are so used to a romanticized perspective where love is an emotion rather than a decision. But it totally flows that from the very moment that he says, Shema, hear, recognize, and obey the Lord your God, for he alone is God. Love him, choose to submit to him with everything you've got, with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And then it continues. Verse 6, these commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. This idea of obedience, submission, you know, Ordering our lives around God just flows right from the very first word all the way through this. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. The commandments he's referring to, again, are found in Deuteronomy chapter 5, those ten commandments. The first four of which were intended to protect and preserve their relationship with their God. Don't have any other gods before me. Don't create any idols that you look to and say, you know, for them, it might have been clay and, and wood, but for us, it's often money and, and looks and success and whatever else it might be. Don't have any idols that you look to to protect and preserve you because I am God alone. Don't take my name in vain. Either don't use it cheaply 
But also don't, take, don't call yourself a follower of Yahweh and then live as if you weren't. It would be like my wife saying, yeah, I'm a Wayman, but living as if she was single, right? That's taking my name in vain. So don't take the Lord your God's name in vain. I heard my wife's voice back there. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then finally, honor the Sabbath, this day to slow down, to cease laboring, and to remember the fact that your, everything that we have is derived from him, and our dependence is not upon our own strength, but upon him. It's a day of resting, reconnection, and recalibration. All four of those first of the Ten Commandments are about our vertical relationship with God, and then the latter six are about our horizontal relationships with one another. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. All of those kind of things are about preserving this relationship. And so Jesus, when he says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, he's pretty much wrapped up all of what the the Ten Commandments was about. However, the Shema doesn't stop there. Because in their prayer, they go on into verse 7. It's not simply about us keeping God's commandments for, in the forefront of our mind, but about passing it on to the next generation of those who are following in our footsteps. He says, verse 7, Impress them upon your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Quite literally, the Israelites have taken this literally and they wear boxes on their foreheads with the scrolls written in them where the Ten Commandments are written in there. And they have them tied to their arms. If you ever see an Orthodox Jew who is in worship, he will have a box on his head and he'll have like his arms strapped up with with the scroll in there. And then also on the door frames of their homes, they will often nail a scroll that has the Ten Commandments found there. They have taken that command literally. But the heart of it, the point he's trying to get at, this is Moses again speaking to the people of Israel before they go into the promised land, is do not forget that the faith that you have is not simply for yourself, but you are called to pass it on to the next generation. Why? Because the people of Israel were a forgetful people. I would say probably one of their biggest issues was that they were forgetful. I mean, you think about the fact that, let's just take one generation, the, t- the generation that God redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. They find themselves enslaved, and Moses shows up, and through a series of ten plagues that God brings upon him, he brought Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the nation, to his knees. And God leads the people out of slavery toward the promised land. And yet the moment they look back and they see a cloud from the chariot wheels kind of descending upon them as they are camped by the Red Sea, they start going, Moses, why did you bring us out here to die by the sword? Moses says, chill out. God's got this. Just be still and watch. And then God parts the Red Sea and leads the people through on dry ground. And they walk through. And then as the Egyptian army tries to follow him, he brings the walls of water crashing back down around them, decimating the most powerful army in the world at that time. And they rejoice, our God is good! And then their tummies start grumbling. 
The next words on their mouth are, Moses, why did our God bring us out here to die of starvation? At least back there we had huge pots of meat. (sighs) Be still and know. God is going to do some great things. And then God begins to feed them with manna in the morning and quail at night. And he takes care of their hunger. He brings water out of a rock. Oh, our God is good. And then he ultimately leads them to the cusp of the promised land. And they send about 12 spies in. Two of them come back and go, the land is amazing. It's got huge clumps of grapes and it's flowing with milk and honey. And 10 come back and go, there's giants, man. I am not going in there. And the Israelites start going, God, why did you bring us out here to die at the hands of a bunch of giants? And at this point, Moses is going, these guys are idiots. Don't they remember what God did to Pharaoh, the most powerful leader in the world? Do they not remember what he did to the army, how he decimated them without them ever having to lift a hand? Do they remember the way that he provided for every need that they had in the wilderness? Manna in the morning, quail at night, water from the rock, even their clothes didn't wear out. And yet, every time they're faced with a new challenge, they so quickly forget what God has already done. And so Moses goes on in verse 10 to kind of hammer home the importance as they are about to walk into the promised land. He says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to our fathers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you a land with large flourishing cities that you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things that you didn't provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. When you eat and are satisfied, basically when you're comfortable, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You know, it's fun to kind of laugh about those silly Israelites who are so forgetful, but think for just a moment about how much we are like them. Yep, Jeff, you and I, we are just like the Israelites. Because when when crisis hits, and crisis will hit, in this world we're going to have trouble. When crisis hits, we, we, we cry, God, I need you, where are you, help me. And he shows up, not always in the way that we anticipate, not always necessarily in the way that we would expect him to. Sometimes his answer is no. But God is faithful to show up in the midst of that and walk through it. And our God is a God of redemption, and he can redeem even the most painful aspects of life in this broken world. And when the crisis passes, when the dawn breaks and the night is filled with light again and we have hope, Our tendency is to go, oh, thanks, God, and move on. If we even acknowledge that he answered our prayer at all, thanks, God, yay, and we move on. And the moment that we turn, we have forgotten about what's been behind, and we continue until we hit another impasse. And all of a sudden, we're going, God, where are you? Don't you see this? Don't you even care? Are you even there? I have seen this so many times in my own life, and our tendency is to get so fixated on what we are facing in the moment that we forget all about how God has shown up. In the past, how he has been faithful. One of my very favorite psalms in the Bible is Psalm 13. It's a psalm in which David basically starts out going, God, where the heck are you? Do you not see what I'm going through? Do you not care? How long will you be silent? How long will you turn your face from me? How long will you allow these people 
who call themselves my friends to just continue to malign my name. And yet, Psalm 13 doesn't end. And what I love partially about that is the fact that David models for us that our God is a big enough God to handle our full range of emotion. He can handle our questions. He can handle our doubts. But David doesn't stop there. Because at the end of Psalm 13, he says, But you have been faithful to me. Time and time again I have seen your faithfulness, so I will worship you. I will celebrate you, and I will trust you with all of my being. He's saying this, by the way, in the midst of the darkness. In the midst of the pit of despair, he's saying, I will choose to trust you. Why? Because I've seen your faithfulness. If you were to go throughout the Old Testament or throughout the New Testament, and even in those passages, so much of the Old Testament is simply a, a declaration of God's faithfulness. It is the historical interaction of God with his people, the ways that he moved into our reality and proved himself to be God. That's why we call this his story, which is all history is, is a story of what God has done. That's what scripture is. God is the main character. He is the focus, and it's his interactions with mankind. And you find it in some really strange places, like in the Psalms. There are many, many Psalms where in the midst of that, they will simply recount all the ways that God has been faithful. Because by sharing the stories of that, they are passing it on to the next generation. Remember, there was only one generation of Israelites that got to see God use plagues to bring Pharaoh to his knees. Only one generation that got to see God decimate an army with a wall of water. Only one generation that got to see God provide manna in the morning and quail at night and water gushing from a rock. But every generation that followed thereafter found their identity as the people of Israel because of that moment that God interceded on their behalf. Though they may not have been alive when it happened, they were alive because it happened. And they were an Israelite, and that meant something special because of what had been a part of their history. And so Israel was constantly pointing back to them saying, Our God is good. Our God has done amazing things. Let me tell you the story of what he's done. And in the same way, when we come to these moments of feeling overwhelmed, one of the best ways that we can combat our tendency to be forgetful is to share the stories of how God has been faithful. Both found here, the stories of how he has interacted with his people throughout history, as well as here in our own life. For us, first, to remember it ourselves, but secondly, to share with those whom God has brought around us, our kids, our grandchildren, our friends, and those whom he has brought into our sphere of influence. Us sharing the stories of his faithfulness is of paramount importance because we're a forgetful people. And it is one of the ways that we can... It's one thing to say God is good. It's yet another thing to illustrate it with an example from your own life. That's why our testimonies are so powerful. Because people might be able to argue... Was the tomb really empty? What really happened on that first day? But they cannot argue with your experience. So this week, I just want to challenge you on something. This week, I want to challenge you to consider what are a couple of the ways that you have seen God to be faithful in your life? How has he shown up in your life? And I want you not only to remember that for yourself, but I want you to share it with somebody else. 
What are those moments when it felt like you, you didn't know how to progress and then God showed up in a way that you could not explain any other way? And I guarantee you that as you share those stories, not only will your own faith be encouraged, but you'll be, up, you'll be encouraging somebody else's faith, planting seeds perhaps in somebody's heart that doesn't even bend a knee to God at this point, has not chosen to love him with all their heart, soul, and strength. Going back here to to Deuteronomy chapter 6. The heart of this is that it is important for us as a people, not only to remember and to keep God front and center in our own lives, but to basically be the ones who plant a faith in the hearts of our children. No, we can't make them believe. But we can do everything that we can by sharing our own lives, our own stories, and by introducing them to the God found between the, the pages of this book. It is our responsibility to cultivate in the, in the hearts of our children and those whom God has brought into our proximity seeds that God can then grow in them. You are the spiritual leaders of your home. Not Lee, myself, not Chris, our youth minister, not Michelle, our family's minister. You are the spiritual leaders of your home. But that does not mean that we don't have a part to play in it as the church. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, and you don't need to turn here, but in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul basically says, God has called some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some to be teachers for a purpose. The church's purpose is to equip the people of God to do the work that he has called them to do. At least one of the things that God has called you to do is to be an ambassador of your faith and to share it with those whom he's put into proximity to you. That's at least one of the things. And it is our responsibility as a church to equip you to do that because I know many of you would probably be like, I have no idea how to even begin going about doing that. So it's our responsibility as a church to equip you to do that. And there's a lot of ways that we're trying to be intentional. I'm just going to talk about a couple. And in a couple of weeks, when we have our dream day, you're going to have an opportunity to hear from Michelle and from Chris and others about how they're intentionally doing this. I just want to highlight a couple of them, of the ways that we're doing this. Firstly, we recognize that if, if you are the spiritual leaders of your home, and you are called to keep God front and center, then we need to continue to spur one another on and encourage one another. That's why I am a huge proponent of small groups, doing life with other people, because although we may be a smaller church where we have one service and we get to see one another on a weekly basis and we actually know most of everybody's name in here, it's still a place where we can kind of skate in, skate out, and only kind of be known. And we can still hide in plain sight. And I have found in my own life, it's in small groups that I am most challenged, most, most challenged to grow by other people. It's that life-on-life relationships that I have found that were cultivated in small groups and then went even beyond that to accountability time where I'm meeting with just a couple of people who know every aspect of my life, the stuff that I wouldn't share anywhere you know, with anybody else or put on Facebook. And that takes place, I have found, most powerfully 
in small groups, which is why I'm such a huge proponent of it. And if you are not currently in a small group, then I would ask you, not simply encourage you, I would ask you to make the time. We have a meeting on you know, multiple days of the week in people's homes here on campus. Would you please make the time to get into a small group? There are um, lists of them in the back. You can check those out, call the people who are leading those groups and find out about them. Or you can just mark in your connection card that you're interested and I will try to help get you plugged into a group that works for you. But that is one of the ways, one of the best ways that I know for us to continue to spur one another on, for us to continue to keep his commands front and center, and for us to basically submit our lives to him. Because we're pursuing God together. That's what we've been called to do. It's not good for us to be alone. We've been created to do life in community, first with God and then with one another. So small groups is, is paramount. But it goes beyond that. What I, one of the things I love about our little community is this is a community that is generations You know, it's not just we're all one age kind of doing life together. We have people who have been walking with Christ longer than many of us have been alive. We get to do life together. And that means also getting to do life with those who are much younger than than us. And if our responsibility is helping equip you as parents, and I'm just going to speak to the parents for a moment, to be the spiritual leaders of your home, one of the ways we want to do that is by giving your children an opportunity to see you worship. Far too many times I have been walking home with Ethan, and I'll go, so Ethan, what did you guys talk about in church today? I don't know. Seriously? Well, how was church? Good. That's it. And he's seven. It's not like he doesn't remember. It's just that he's not communicating it, or maybe he quite honestly doesn't remember. I don't know. But I know this. These guys are hearing the same message that you are. When they're walking home or when they're driving home from church, you as parents have the opportunity, Tim, to go, so here's what really resonated for me today. This is what I heard in the message. Or this is, maybe it was a worship song that really spoke to him. And Tim or Susan can look over at Ian and Cameron and go, man, this really resonated for me. How about you? And if Ian and Cameron go, I don't know, then follow up with a question because they heard the same message that, he, that Tim and Susan did. Well, how about this? What, what did you think about this? Was there anything confusing? <clears throat> Was there anything you didn't disagree, that you didn't agree with? Conversation can happen when you're, having, when you're hearing the same message, when you're worshiping together. And the boys have an opportunity to watch their parents worship. They get to model it. That's one of the reasons why we have chosen to have our sixth graders through high schoolers in this room with us. And that's not to say that it's not important for them to have their own place to be able to worship as well. And I'm so excited that God has brought Chris and Jenny to our church to be our our youth ministers. And today, right after church, for all of you parents with sixth graders on, if you want to find out what, what the vision is and how you can participate, but also what his plan is for what he's got for the youth, and if you want to be able to speak into it, I encourage you, in fact, I challenge you to go to that lunch today. And the youth, I think you guys are welcome, right, Jenny? The youth are welcome as well to go have lunch, hang out, and, and offer advice as well, and offer your input. But it's really fun, so that's another thing. Now, one, one last thing as I'm kind of wrapping this up. One last thing. On Friday night... I had the opportunity to sit in a room with 19 couples, many of whom who have been married longer than Kathy and I have been alive. People who have 40, 50 years of marriage under their belts. And all of them 
have committed to being trained as marriage mentors because one of the things that we have recognized as a church is that we have a lot of couples, like Kathy and myself, who desire to have a thriving marriage, who desire to be great parents to our kids, and yet are feeling overwhelmed and sometimes feeling like we're just struggling to keep our head above water. And yet at the same time, we have all of these couples who have already walked miles in our shoes, have already walked these same paths that we find ourselves walking. <clears throat> and what we need more than anything is to have a couple that, like, we have Byron and Diane. Quite honestly, there are times where I just go, I need to go over to Byron and Diane's and hang out with them. Sometimes Kathy and I will just go over and just sit with them and just go, we just want to be with you guys. Because they bring us hope that, that the frustrations of the moment will pass as well. That the, the, the frustrations of trying to be parents and pouring it out and realizing that you just don't have a whole lot of margin left to be present with one another, that too shall pass. And Byron and Diane are so wonderful to always go, oh boy, you guys are so, many, so, many, so far ahead of where we were at your age, which always feels really good when you hear like, what I love about all of these marriage mentors that we got is none of them are perfect. None of them have a perfect marriage. None of them are even doing it perfectly now, which means that they're safe to talk about your junk with. And here's what I'm excited about. Beginning in February, on February 17th, and for wet, four Wednesdays in a row, we're going to have a guy named Bill Nelson who's been doing marriage mentor training for over 25 years. He's going to do a marriage enrichment seminar. And it's open to anybody who wants to strengthen their marriage. It can be somebody who attends church here. It can be somebody who goes to the preschool. It can be somebody from our community or just a friend that you go, you guys would really benefit from being able to have some conversations about how to strengthen your marriage. And in that room, we will have a lot of marriage mentors who have just spent a month being trained up to invest in us. And our hope is that out of that month of four Wednesdays, some relationships will take place where a marriage mentor and a, marriage cu- and a couple who wants to strengthen their marriage will be able to hook up and go, can we, just, can we do life together for a little bit? This is one of the ways that we as a church in this year, in 2016, are attempting to invest in and equip you to strengthen your marriage so that you can... so that our marriages can honor God. So that we won't succumb to the, this... The, the breaking down of marriages all around because that affects everybody, not just our kids, not just ourselves, but everybody around us. And so this is one of the ways that we are saying, hey, we want to be intentional about equipping our church to grow and to keep God front and center. But here's the point. If I'm going to wrap it all up. It's basically the same thing that Jesus said. Hear, O lighthouse. Listen up, pay attention, and submit yourself. Obey. Because the Lord our God, he alone is worthy of our lives. So choose to love the Lord your God. Choose to submit every aspect of your life, all of your thoughts, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your plans, every moment of every day, every breath in your lungs, all of your abilities, your talents, and your resources. Submit it all to him and say, basically, would you be the captain of my ship? Help me to submit my life, God. Help me to keep your commands front and center in my life so that I ultimately can be an ambassador of hope and reconciliation. 
to my family, to my neighborhood, in my workplace, at my school, even in my church. That's our prayer. I'm going to invite Andy to come up. We're going to take a time of worship. And if you, if you would like to, and I don't have this on the connection card yet, but if you would like to sign up for our marriage mentor class, I'm sorry, not marriage mentor. If you'd like to sign up for our marriage enrichment class beginning February 17th, please indicate that on your connection card. If you'd like to sign up for the Wave 101 class, it's next week. Indicate that on your connection card. If you would like prayer for anything, indicate that on your connection card. In just a moment, we're going to take offering. Um, and we'll collect those. So, pass it over to you, Lee.